happy 4th of July. I love the 4th of July. It's one of my favorite holidays. I love it because it's the summertime. It's nice and warm. I love it because you can eat watermelon. I love it because of fireworks. I just love the 4th of July. It's a great day. Celebrating our freedom. And it's a good day to be in church. Amen? 4th of July on a Sunday, communion Sunday. Man, we hit the jackpot today. I'm glad you're sharing in my enthusiasm. We're going to continue our series on Acts chapter 9. We're in our series of Acts, and today we're going to be studying Saul's conversion. And I'm titling the message today from Acts chapter 9, Saul's conversion, as an emotional roller, emotional roller coaster. Has anyone ever had or been on an emotional roller coaster? Have you ever had any type of event in your life that your emotions went from one way on a scale and all the way to the other way on the scale? And you just reacted to the event because you're an emotional being. How many of you are emotional beings? For those of you not raising your hands, you have the emotion of fear because you know you're an emotional being, but you're not raising your hand, right? All of us are emotional beings. That's who we are. That's how we are created. And all of us have experienced different moments in our lives where we've had an emotional roller coaster. And so we're going to be studying Saul's conversion and his emotional roller coaster today. But how many of you love fireworks? Out of all the hands that I've seen raised, fortunately enough, I did not see anyone's hands with missing fingers, which means you love fireworks enough not to blow your hands up with them. How many of you know that fireworks are illegal to sit off by yourself in New York? And yet, how many of you were woken up last night at midnight by your neighbors throwing off fireworks? Or how many of you have a dog that's running around crazy because of fireworks? Or better yet, how many of young children who don't want to go to sleep because there's fireworks happening next door to your house? Raise your hand. Yeah, that's me. Yeah. Right? Well, I recall the first time my daughter saw fireworks. And so 4th of July, she was, I think she was like two years old. We were explaining all the fun things about 4th of July barbecue party with our family and friends. And that night, we're going to see fireworks. And so we're building up the fireworks. Not to be scared. It's going to be fun. They're beautiful in the night sky, all this. And so she's happy, joyful, has a great day. She gets to spend the day at a barbecue at a friend's house, eating food and dessert, which she loves. And so she's in a great mood. And then it got dark out. And when it gets dark out on the 4th of July, you set up fireworks, of course. And so we're preparing her. She sits on our laps. She's waiting for the fireworks to go off, all excited. This is the emotional roller coaster here, all excited. And then the first firework goes off, and then boom! It's the loud ones that I'm, I love the loud ones. How about you? The ones that shake your soul, those are my favorites. You know, the beautiful ones, those are great, but the boom, boom, boom ones that, like, you know, you can feel it, those are my favorite. Well, to a two year old, that's not her favorite. So the first one goes off, her eyes go, whoa. And then the second one goes off, and the third one, and the fourth one, and all of a sudden, these emotions of fearfulness and scared get a hold of her, and she starts to cry. And so we have to bring her inside. So this 4th of July party of the happiness, the excitement, the anticipation of fireworks turned into bawling a two-year-old inside because the fireworks are going off outside. It's the emotional roller coaster of an event in your life, the way you interpret something and how you react to it. How many of you are like me who are a Mets and a Jets fan? Not very many of you in here. 
you go on an emotional roller coaster every time you watch a game. I'd like to say the Mets did beat the Yankees yesterday. So I, I'm on an emotional high right now because of that. But I have never been alive to see either one of my two teams win a championship. And so the emotional roller coaster that I go on is I go into a season, I go into the game with all the hope in the world, and usually, actually always, I've always left sad, defeated, depressed, and angry. Every game, every season to me is an emotional roller coaster. Or something more serious. What about, let's say, the birth of your first child, right? The emotional roller coaster of the anticipation of what life's going to be like afterwards, right? What the whole birthing process, or even just the preparation, right, of what's going to happen when I have a child. And boy, does life change when you have children. Am I right, parents? Am I right? It's an emotional roller coaster, and I would dare to say that parenthood in, in itself is an emotional roller coaster, is it not? Just parenthood itself. Life itself is an emotional roller coaster. What am I saying? Life itself. We go through lows and the highs. We go through many different emotions. We feel things and we interpret it because emotions are the feelings that are a byproduct of our thoughts and actions. It's through our emotions that we express our thoughts, our desires, our opinions, our beliefs, our attitudes. It demonstrates the interpretation of life, what you see, how you interpret it, and how you react. Do you know you're made in the image of God? And God himself experiences emotions such as grief and anger and wrath. We too experience a range of emotions. If we didn't have emotions, we'd be like a bunch of robots walking, talking, the exact same. Our emotions make us unique. The same with free choice. If God didn't allow us to have free choice and the choice to process our emotions differently and respond to them differently, we would all be the same exact person. But we serve a purposeful God, a God that doesn't waste the emotions that we have. How many of you, like me, would love to delete sadness or anger or frustration, just delete those emotions, get rid of them, and then just keep the emotions of love, joy, and hope. Right? That would be so convenient if we could just delete some emotions and keep the good ones. But the thing is, God uses our emotions to reveal our hearts. It's part of the sanctification process of getting closer to God. It's through our negative emotions. If you're angry all the time, and you can dissect that you're angry all the time, you probably need to work on your anger to grow closer to God. Am I correct? If you're sad all the time, if you know you're sad all the time, you need to adjust your sadness to realize the joy of the Lord in your heart to grow closer to God. It's our negative emotions that God points out to us and brings up to us so that we can work on becoming more like him. So ultimately, as we study the conversion of Saul, we study his emotional roller coaster and how he goes from one point to another point, and at the end point, he is closer to Christ than he was at the beginning. That's what these emotions do. That's what the emotional roller coaster happened. And so in Acts chapter 9, we're going to read Saul's conversion. Acts chapter 9, verses 1. You can read it on the screen as you read through it. It starts by reading, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light came 
from heaven and flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, and when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand to Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he is seeing In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength." Wow. Saul. Many of you know Saul as Paul. The names are interchangeable. And you might not know this, but there's no place in the Bible where Saul happened and Jesus said, nope, your name's not Saul anymore, now it's Paul. Actually, those names are just interchangeable. Saul, we mostly know Saul as before his encounter and Paul after his encounter. It's more of interpretation between Hebrew and Greek is why that happens within the Bible. So, Saul, who we're talking about, who is also Paul, encounters Jesus on the way to murder Christians. His problem emotion is anger. In verse chapter, verse 1, meanwhile, Saul was breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. That's pretty intense, you would say. Saul was so angry, so angry at people for Christianity's so angry at Christians for believing Jesus was Messiah that he decided to get permission to go murder them. That's an angry person. How many know angry people? Hopefully you don't know people as angry as Saul. But how many know angry people? Usually if you're an angry person, you don't want to be around that person, if you know an angry person. Anger is not a healthy emotion. Would I be correct in saying anger is not a healthy emotion? Would you agree with that statement? I need a little interaction this morning just to keep me going here because, you know, when I don't have interaction, I feel like I'm speaking to dead people. And we're certainly not dead to lie, all right? We're certainly not dead. We're alive in Christ and physically alive here. So who is Saul? He's an educated Pharisee who was Jewish but had Roman citizenship, which is very valuable to him. So this gave him access to not only education, but geography. He was able to be educated, and he was able to travel. And so because he was highly educated, he knew the Old Testament very well. And so knowing the Old Testament very well, probably memorizing most of the Old Testament due to his 
Pharisee background, he was adamant about keeping the Mosaic law, the Old Testament law. And so because he was adamant about keeping the Mosaic law, he did not believe Jesus was Messiah. And so because he did not believe Jesus was Messiah, he therefore thought that every Christian spreading Jesus' name and the gospel was wrong. And because he thought they were wrong, he went on a mission to kill them all. Essentially, bring them back to Jerusalem, throw them in jail, put them on trial so that they would be murdered. In fact, Saul was a witness to Stephen's death. Right, Pastor Greg preached about Stephen two Sundays ago. He was the first martyr. He was the first one killed for his faith. And so Saul was there and witnessed that and approved of that death. So Saul wanted to see every single Christian be like Stephen, dead. And so he was driven by anger. He was angry at what the Christians were doing. He was also being driven by deceit. He and his Jewish leaders and the Pharisees believed that they were 100% correct in their belief and thinking. And so Paul, or Saul, was spiritually blind. He was spiritually blind to what was happening in front of him, and that was Jesus Christ and his disciples spreading the good news and the gospel to the world. And so he was being driven by anger, and yet the gospel completely destroys the aspect of motivation by anger because God is love. In 1 John chapter 4 it reads, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. And this, the love of God, was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. And this love, not that we have loved God, but that he had loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. That's quite a message that Saul needs to hear. Quite a message that Saul was ignoring. He was on a religious mission, had a motivation by anger to stop something that was created out of love. God sending his only son to die on the cross for us and his unconditional love for every single one of us. And so that by through his love for us, we are to love one another and love others. Completely destroys the narrative of Saul and his angry mission. So instead of the motivation of anger that drives one's soul, on the contrary, the greatest motivation can be replaced by God's love for us. How many are transformed today because God's love for you has changed your life. Amen? Because of God's love in our lives, then we are to reciprocate that and to love others. Now, loving others is intentional. You have to intentionally love other people. Sometimes it just doesn't come naturally. Intentionally loving others, even when you don't like them. Oh, I got to be honest with you. I got to be truthful today. I'm going to be straight up with you. I would not actually love all of you if God didn't tell me to intentionally love you. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Some of you, I have to intentionally love. But for real, we have to intentionally love one another in order to be more like Jesus. It doesn't come naturally. It really doesn't. You're right? We, we have to intentionally love our children, who we actually really love, 
but there are moments where we have to intentionally love them when they are driving us crazy. That is just the aspect of life. There's moments when we intentionally have to love people when we don't want to. It is a decision to love other people because our Savior unconditionally loves us. And so how will people know God if they don't see God in us through our love and our actions? There's a distinct difference in the quality of life for those who are pursuing loving others as motivation rather than those who are pursuing hate. If you are pursuing love and loving one another, the quality of your life is better than if you are pursuing hate and anger. Saul was pursuing anger in his mission. And guess what happened? He encountered Jesus. In verse number three, his second emotion is fear. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light came from heaven, flashed around him, and he fell to the ground, and he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And he responds, who are you, Lord? Saul is very religious, and he's very educated. Like I said before, he knew the Old Testament well because he probably memorized it. That was part of his education was memorizing the Old Testament. And what's scary is that Saul had knowledge of God through the Old Testament. He had scriptural knowledge of God. But when he encountered Jesus, Jesus was not a friend to him. And that should shake us to our bones. Because many of us, many of the church, not this, this church, but the church in the United States of America, the church of the, the world, has knowledge of God, but is not a friend of Jesus. You can be religious and forget the relationship. Communion today means nothing if you don't have a relationship with Jesus. You can have the knowledge of what Jesus did on the cross, but if you don't have an intimate relationship with Jesus, you don't know Jesus. Saul knows God. He scripturally knows God. He can quote scripture. In fact, we see it all through the New Testament for the different books that Paul wrote. He quotes the Old Testament verbatim because he memorized it. But Saul did not know Jesus. And so in this instant, there was a fear that gripped him. Shining light on him. The flashing of light was a physical fear, yes. But there also was a fear because he, know, he knew something divine was happening. And it was Jesus. And he did not know Jesus. He calls him, Lord, who are you, Lord? He's literally saying, I understand that this is a divine moment. But who are you? Because I don't know you. I know the God of the Old Testament, but I don't know you, Jesus. Some of us need that reminder. The knowledge of Jesus is not enough. The relationship with Jesus is everything. Everything. Your personal relationship, your intimate moments with Jesus is everything. What this encounter with Jesus teaches is that the gospel has the power to transform any and every willing life willing to hear. This gives me hope for a future. As I raise my, my children up in this society, in this culture, I have the emotion of fear what the future looks like for my kids. I'm fearful of what is going to happen within our society, what's going to happen within our country, what different ways, ideal, ideas, and thoughts are going to 
go in our country in a, in a way that they're training up children and teaching children. And so I'm fearful in that way, but I also find scripture like this and it gives me hope because God can turn any situation completely around. If he can take Saul, who was on the road to persecute and kill Christians, then he can take any single one of us, he can take our culture and our society and turn it around and make it for his good. God can convert anyone because of the love of Christ. And so if he can do that to Saul, who was at the depths of anger, he was in the pinnacle moment and a mission to kill people. If he could turn his life around, he can certainly turn the United States and eighths of America around. He can turn our country around. He can take these beliefs, the lies, the deceit of the devil that has grown into our culture, he can turn that around. And it starts with us as the church standing up for what we believe in and standing up for the Bible. It's up to the Holy Spirit working in and through us. And so that fear that I might have about our future, the fear that I, that I have is always answered by Scripture when God reminds me of his power and that he has everything under control and all together. And that as I rely on him, as I parent my children relying on him, he is going to take care of them. He's going to teach them. Everything is going to be okay. That emotion of fear that grips Saul turns into an emotion of confusion in the next verse. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could not see anything. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. And for three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. Saul was blind for three days. Can you imagine that? Closing your eyes and just being blind. You're blind for three days. Not only that, you're blind right after an incredible event in your life. He's sitting in a state of confusion about what just happened. He's processing the emotions. It's the process of the emotions up to this point. That's the roller coaster ride. He had a state of anger and a state of fear and now a state of confusion as he's, as he's sitting in silence. And so it doesn't actively, it doesn't say in scripture that he's actively talking to anyone because no one really knows what's going on. The people around him heard the sound but couldn't audibly hear God talking to Saul. So they knew something was happening but didn't actually know what was happening. So Saul was isolated in his own thoughts, in his own ways for three days. He was sitting in silence and in darkness for three days figuring out what just happened. How many know that being isolated in your thoughts for too long is not a good idea? If you're isolated thinking and just sitting there, isolated thinking about what could be, what could have done, right? you start to overthink things. Isolation is not good. Isolation in your thoughts can be very dangerous. But at this particular time, in this particular moment, Jesus sought saw it fit for Saul to be in isolation in his own thoughts for three days. Why? Why was this a three-day confusion process? Why didn't Saul just immediately open his eyes after his conversion and be completely changed? Why did he have to go through a process of sitting there for three days in his own thoughts? Well, I think a couple things happened while he is sitting there. First, I think he's putting together all the pieces. Remember, Saul is educated, knows the Old Testament very well, and so he's probably putting together the pieces of Jesus as being the Messiah, the answer to all the prophecy within the Old Testament. So he's pondering in silence and isolation that he just witnessed Jesus Christ, who spoke to him in a personal revelation, 
And now he's putting together biblically the pieces of who Jesus was of his educated knowledge. So he's sitting there pondering these things. He's also sitting there wondering what's going to happen next. What's my future? Am I, am I blinded forever? That's a legitimate thought. Am I blind? Am, am I ever going to come out of this blindness? Is he ever going to come out of this blindness? You see, though he was physically blinded, his spiritual eyes were opening. He was, he was understanding scripture in a more enlightened level because he encountered Jesus Christ. So though he was physically blinded, these three days were spiritually opening his eyes to the truth and the way and the life. But it was a struggle. Those three days, I can't imagine the struggle it would be sitting there blind, trying to understand what just happened. The wait is a struggle. Waiting period of time. The struggle period of time is often the most faith-building aspects in our lives. Sometimes we find ourselves waiting on God, waiting for God to make the next step, the next move, waiting for God to make something open up for us to move forward, waiting on God. And during that wait is a frustrating time period, and we feel different emotions of anger and frustration and sadness, but also the, the emotions of hope enjoying the Lord. You see, the, the time that we're in the valley, the time that we're struggling and going through the trials, the time that we're waiting on God is also the time that we are most vulnerable before God. It's also the time that we're most humble before God. And when we're humble and vulnerable before God because we need him, that is when our faith grows the most. That's when our eyes are spiritually open the most. That's when we're most aware of the Holy Spirit working and moving in our lives. When we're in the time that we're waiting, when we're in the struggle, when we're in the valleys of life, we are open to God to work in, through, in and through us and to grow our faith. You see that waiting period of time? That's not wasted. God doesn't waste any time. God does not waste our emotions. So when we're emotionally exhausted, when we're sad because of situations in our lives, when we're angry because of situations got happening in our lives, that's the time when we're waiting on God. That is the time for growth in our lives. It's the struggle that brings the Holy Spirit and his growth in our lives. I hear from God more during times of struggle than I do when everything is good. It's perspective. It's the, it's the humility. When everything is great in my life, I'm not as humble because why should I be? Everything's great. But when everything's bad, when you're in a place where you're desperate for God, you are humble before God because you can only rely on him. When your only answer is God, then your spiritual eyes are open. Your spiritual eyes open when nothing else matters but God. Sometimes we need to remember that when we are in the valley, when we're in the struggle, when, we're, when we are waiting, in the waiting game, waiting for something to happen, that's when our faith grows. That's when we look to God. That's when our emotions are important. You see, Paul saw, which turns and we recognize as Paul, later writes in 2 Corinthians we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. There is a critical aspect of taking captive thoughts and allowing your emotions to come from those thoughts. Take captive of the negative thoughts and allow your emotions to reflect the image and attributes of Jesus Christ in your life. Amen? Amen. We're running out of time. I'm going to invite our, 
worship team up. The last emotion is emotion number four in, it, in its acceptance. And there's two aspects of acceptance within the scripture verse. First, the aspect of acceptance is from Ananias when he is told from God to go to Saul. And so Ananias knows who Saul is. He knows that Saul is breathing murderous threats to Christians, his people, even him himself. He may have felt threatened himself by going to Saul. But Ananias is told from God that Saul is his chosen instrument. And so because Ananias heard from God, Ananias went to Saul. So he put away all of his hesitancy. He put away all of his doubt. And he went to Saul accepting that Saul was going to be accepted into the the body of Christ. And so that's important because obedience is important for us as Christians to know. When God says something, it's wise to be obedient and to follow God. Because God is working on the other side that you don't see. God is working behind the scenes on different things that we don't understand and we don't see. We just have to be obedient. You see, Ananias doesn't know everything that Saul went through. Ananias has no idea about this conversion experience. He's not thinking about the behind-the-scenes actions of what God has done, what Jesus did to encounter Saul. Ananias, all he knows is God tells him to go to Saul because God chose him as his chosen instrument. And so Ananias says, yes, I'm obedient. I will do that, God. It's important for us to be obedient without knowing all the details. How many control freaks do we have in here that need to know all the details, right? Sometimes it's hard for us because we have to obey God without knowing all the details. That's, it's okay. That's called obedience. That's called faith. To obey God without knowing what's going to happen. That is faith. Ananias had faith. He went and accepted Saul. Saul was sitting there waiting for someone, and Ananias comes in. Ananias places his hands on Saul, and he says, Brother Saul. Now that phrase is very important when he says brother, because of the acceptance. The phrase of brother in the Jewish culture, as as well as in Christianity, means that he is being accepted into the church, the body of Christ. Christ is the head of the church, and we are all members of the church, different bodies, parts, with all different functions and features. He's calling him brother because he is now the family of God. He's in the family of Christ. He calls him Brother Saul. Brother Saul is literally saying, welcome to the family. There's There's an aspect of acceptance that Saul needs to hear. Not only that Jesus accepted him, Saul says, what do you want from me, Jesus, right? What would you have me do? So Saul is saying yes to Jesus, and then he goes blind. And after his three days of being blind, he hears Ananias say, brother Saul, meaning that he is now being accepted into the church, into the body of Christ, which is very important for us because in our own spiritual lives, as we walk through our spiritual lives, it's important for us to have a body of believers around us to encourage us and to accept us into the body. Right? It's, it's important for us to have relationships within the church. It's important for us to have uh, relationships that build us up with each other in this church. So when we go to one another and we say, brother, sister, you're part of the family of God. This is a very important aspect of his acceptance, of Saul's acceptance. This is a very important reason why Saul was so successful in his missionary journey because of the support he had being part of the body of Christ. And so his his conversion experience with Jesus solidified once he was accepted into the body of Christ. Once Ananias said, Brother Saul, 
once Ananias prayed for him, the scales fell off of Saul's eyes and he was able to see. So his spiritual eyes were open and his physical eyes were open. Once he was baptized in the Holy Spirit, he was empowered to do incredible and mighty and powerful things. That's all because Jesus encountered him right where he was at and used his emotions to put a godly perspective on his life. He does the same thing with us. We go through roller coaster of emotions on a day-to-day basis, different events in our lives. Just living life is an emotional roller coaster. But as we process these emotions, as we put them captive, the thoughts in our minds captive, as we take them captive and we process our emotions and we realize that God has everything under control and he unconditionally loves us and he has a plan and a purpose for our future, then we can process emotions and point them to good, point them to him, point them to the love of Christ. And people, as they watch us, as they watch us as emotional beings, and they see us as a witness for Jesus because of how we process our emotions in a healthy way and point it to God, then they see there's a difference in us, and that's how we make a difference in this world. That's how the church rises up. We don't fight emotions. We accept emotions. Right? We accept from how we process them. And we filter them through in a healthy way, right? The filtering of emotions and the emotional roller coaster we go through is very biblical. And we see it all the time within Scripture. We see different Bible characters throughout Scripture go through different events in their lives. And yet God uses many of these events for His good. He uses this emotional roller coaster for good. He uses your emotions for good. We are very emotional beings. That is a good thing. Use your emotion to bring glory to God. Amen. I'm going to ask you to stand up this morning. Our conversion process is similar to Saul's process, but much less dramatic. Much, much less dramatic. But as we accept Christ, it's very similar to the process Saul went through. Saul was a very sinful person, as we saw. He was driven by anger and hate. The cruelty of seeking out the Christians. He was driven by sin, but he had a conviction moment. It was sudden when Jesus encountered him. How many of you know when Jesus encounters you, your life is not the same? Jesus encountered Saul. He, he encountered him and he said, Saul, you're living the wrong way. Saul cries out, Lord, who are you? Saul's crying out because he wants to know Jesus Christ in an intimate way. And after the conviction is, this, is the decision, Saul says, Lord, what will you have me do? He's literally saying, God, what do you want me to do? Jesus, I now see that you are real. Real. What do you want me to do? And he spent three days seeking that truth, seeking that. We have to go through a moment of conversion where we have a, an acknowledgement of sin in our lives, a conviction for that sin, a decision to look to Jesus and accept him, a seeking of who Jesus is and also living out what Jesus has done to our lives. So what we read in the Bible about Saul is very much real in our own lives because as Christians in here, you have gone through that process. And those who don't know Jesus have yet to go through that process. And so there's a certain process which Jesus encounters your life. So I don't know if you're here by accident today. I don't know anything about your life, some of you. But I know you're here right now. And I know some of you are watching online. And so I'd like to invite you just to close your eyes and bow your heads. If there's anyone here today that knows without a shadow of a doubt, they don't know Jesus intimately, 
but there's no, you don't have a relationship with Jesus intimately. You might know who God is. You might have heard of God. You might have heard of Jesus. You might have information about Jesus, but you specifically know you have no relationship with Jesus, and you want that to change today. Jesus is here right now. His Holy Spirit, His presence is in this room, and He's encountering you right now. And so if that's you and you want to accept Jesus as Lord and Savior in your heart, if you want to know Jesus intimately, I'm not going to embarrass you. I just want to simply ask you to raise your hand, and I'll acknowledge you. I won't embarrass you. We'll pray after this. If there's anyone here that wants to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior, amen. I see your hand. Amen. Amen. Is there anyone else? Here this morning that doesn't know Jesus intimately, that you want to start an intimate relationship, a real relationship with Jesus this morning. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Okay, I'm going to ask you, everyone in this room this morning, just to repeat a prayer after me as we pray together. And for those that raised their hands this morning, I want to simply invite you after I dismiss, I'm going to be up here. The pastors are going to be up here and we just want to have a conversation with you because this next prayer is important, but it's just the starting point. It's just the starting, it's just the acknowledgement of praying that you're a sinner is the starting point. There's also a process of understanding, the seeking process. Saul went through it for three days while he was blind. The seeking process of knowing who Jesus is and having a relationship. But it starts with the prayer. Amen. So let's bow our heads. Let's pray together and repeat after me. Lord Jesus, I admit that I am a sinner. And I know that you unconditionally love me. And I want a personal relationship with you. I recognize that you died on the cross for my sins. And I love you and praise you for that. Help me to know you better. Amen. 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 Can we give a round of applause for those who made that decision today? Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Again, if you made that decision, please come to the altar after. And I just want to have a conversation over any one of our patches. We just want to have a conversation with you because that, that's a starting point. I admit that I'm a sinner. Amen, church? We admit that we are sinners. We are nothing without Jesus, but Jesus transforms our life just like he transforms Saul. Hallelujah. If you need prayer for anything else, our altars are open. And uh, today's a wonderful day. Happy Independence Day, church. God bless you. Go pick your children up. Go to the lobby. Have some fun eating some bagels and coffee. Have a relationship with one another. We're the body of Christ. So let's act like it. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful day.